Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and I'm excited to have Eileen Lerner, who's the founder and CEO of Interviewing.io, which does anonymous mock interviews with uh, engineers from top companies. Eileen is an alumni of MIT, and a big thanks to a. Moa from Boomerang for the introduction. Uh, welcome to the show, Eileen. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. So, you know, uh, uh, it's great to have you. And uh, you, you do have an interesting journey. You know, how did you get your start, start in, in interviews, uh, into, sorry, into startups? And what made you build interviewing.io? Yeah. Uh, so many years ago, I was working as a software engineer. And... Um, Toward the end of that, um, I was running a small team. Uh, I did it for about five years total, and you'll see why it was only five years in a moment, but I was running a small team and I had to deal with hiring for the first time. And none of us uh, had really dealt with it in a, you know, in a meaningful way before really, um, and at least nobody on, on the Eng team. And we didn't have a recruiter on staff. This was a small bootstrapped SaaS company. so. We were all constantly getting interrupted to do interviews and do our own scheduling. And eventually I thought, you know what, guys, I'll make a spreadsheet. I'll fall on the sword and make it so everybody can get back to work. And that was the beginning of a decade plus long journey where I just fell down this rabbit hole where uh, interviewing and recruiting became my life. But as I got into it, um, I realized that the challenge wasn't in making a spreadsheet. The challenge was in um identifying good talent you know figuring out how to do that making sure that hiring was actually efficient and i actually got so fascinated by the problems that i tried working as a recruiter for a few years to try to learn what it was like and uh, i ended up running recruiting at a few companies uh then i started my own recruiting firm and then that very windy path led me to start interviewing io but Basically, um, you know, we are primarily a mock interview platform. That's what the majority of our users start using us for. But we also do hiring on the back end. And I'll talk a little more about that later. But um, basically, uh, I was trying in one fell swoop to solve everything that I had seen broken about hiring on all sides of the table. And the biggest problem by far was that people really, you know, uh, in the absence of something better, insist on using resumes to try to figure out if somebody is actually a good engineer. And there's no relationship between uh, what's on somebody's resume generally and whether they're good. There, there, you know, there's some like loose relationship sometimes, but it's not nearly as predictive as people think. Um, but in the absence of something better, that's what companies use. And as a result, a lot of very good people end up getting written off. Um, the other problem is that even if you look good on paper, so you worked at a FANG, you went to a top school, getting into a company that you're interested in is actually really, really hard. Um, you basically have to hope that a recruiter from that company contacted you recently, because if they contacted you a long time ago, they probably don't work there anymore. I think like recruiters average 10 years, like six months or something. So you have to go through your old LinkedIn spam when you decide you're looking, you're like, okay, uh, I guess I'll respond to this. And then, you know, that person isn't there anymore, or you have to know somebody and then they have to refer you in, um, and if you don't have a recruiter that contacted you and you don't have somebody that already works there, 
how do you get in? It's like screaming into a black hole. And that is even true for candidates that are traditionally very well qualified. So these are the kinds of problems that we set out to solve. Like my goal is if you're a great engineer, I don't care what you look like on paper, you should be able to press a button and talk to any company that you want at any time without having to have endless recruiting conversations and scheduling and you just should be able to do that. Why yeah. can't you? Yeah. Um, so our mission as a company is to make hiring efficient Thanks. because we think that that's the only way that hiring can actually be fair. Mm, got it. Interesting. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, you, you can't look at somebody's resume and find out, you know, uh, they, they are good in coding or they're a, the good and technical, but but do you think, uh, and it's all it also comes for sales. Do you think uh, the the way uh, you know we look at recruiting by looking at a, a resume and applying it online? Uh, do you think a better way is through references, or or you know mm-hmm. what do you think is the better way than just yeah. you know, sending out hundreds of resumes? Say? Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think. In today's world, getting a referral is certainly better, but not always. Um, we've seen a lot of our users get referred and then nothing happens because that company's recruiting team doesn't treat referrals well, right? How high functioning a recruiting team is really varies from company to company. And some of them don't have a robust process for moving referrals through the pipeline, even though those people are a little bit better than people that you would pluck just out of the random pool of of people applying to your company. But I don't think that the right path is either of these things. Um, uh, What we're trying to build and and, well, I shouldn't say trying, we've built it. Uh, What we're trying to publicize and have more companies use is um, basically a candidate led model The way it works on interviewing IO is, and we'll talk about the mock interview piece too, I'm sure, but you start doing mock interviews. Uh, We don't care who you are. We don't care how you look on paper. We don't care where you went to school. We just let you practice. And then if you do well in practice, regardless of, of anything else, you unlock the ability to instantly book real technical interviews with top companies, right? So now instead of having to get referred in or God forbid, you know, apply online, you literally like press a button and you're like, I want an interview at Amazon tomorrow. And I I want to talk to an engineer. And then you just do that. So on our platform, you press a button and then you have an interview with an Amazon engineer. I mean, right now they're, they're frozen as are many other companies, but up until the world started to explode, that was the case. Um, And that interview is still anonymous. Right. Just like practice. We don't care who you are. We don't care where you went to school. When you interview at a company like Amazon with us, they don't know anything about you. They just know that you've done really, really well in your practice. And then at the end of the interview, if you do well, you unmask and then you move straight to an onsite. So something like that is much closer in my mind to how hiring should work. Maybe even in an idealized world, you don't have to interview again. Right. Once we know you're a good engineer, how many more of these interviews do you need to do? My ideal kind of vision for this is at some point you just say, I want to talk to a founder. I want to talk to a manager, right? I want to learn a little bit about the roadmap and about the culture and projects and tech stack. And if I'm interested, then I just go straight to an onsite. And that's, but it should all be driven by candidates. No recruiter outreach, no nothing. You just decide what companies you want to talk to. Any company you want to talk to, you just do it. 
Correct. And uh, I want to understand, you know, how, how has the 2022 layoffs, you know, affected engineers, especially, you know, with the, the news of Google firing, uh, as well as Amazon, you know, firing a lot of clock engineers. And you did mention there's a hiring freeze. What uh, what should be your advice for engineers? Yeah, it's it's rough out there, but I think... Um... Well, I'll, I'll start by talking about something that I think would be surprising to many of your listeners. Right. Uh, so I recently, actually I'm running it again now to get more people to respond, but I ran a poll on Twitter just to get a feel for how many engineers people think got laid off in the last year. Okay. And people think it's generally somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000. Yeah. And that's because the press keeps talking about tech layoffs, right? And every day you're reading about a new tech layoff that has tens of thousands of people, but nobody ever tells you how those layoffs are broken down by function. So what portion of those are actually engineers? What portion are recruiters? What portion are marketers? You don't really know. So we did a little bit of digging, well, a lot of digging. Um, and from what we can tell, only uh, about 5% of all layoffs are software engineers. So in between the start of 2022 and now, somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 people have gotten laid off. But if you quickly crunch the numbers, that's somewhere between seven and a half thousand and 10,000 engineers, uh, which is an order of magnitude off from what I can tell uh, what most people think it is. Now, of course, it's still really heartbreaking for those people, especially from you know what I can tell, many of the people being let go are not being let go for performance. They're being let go because, frankly, the company didn't do a good job of planning or overhired, right? Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of great people, and especially uh, what's terrible is people that are here on visa, right, and then only have yeah. 60 days. But uh, so I think first thing is like engineers are not getting laid off as much as the press would have you believe. Um, but I think that the uh, best thing that you can do as a software engineer is to keep your skills sharp, right? Um, Technical interviewing is a nasty beast. There are a lot of things that are bad about it. And of course, you might say, well, you're the founder of a practice platform. Of course, you're going to tell people to practice. But the reality is that that matters now probably more than ever. And the more senior you are, ironically, the worse you do in some of these interviews, because it's more and more removed from the work that you're doing every day. So I think just spending a little bit of time getting your reps in is not a bad thing. And I think that things will start to settle down, hopefully in the next six months, there will at least be some more clarity around who's hiring and who's frozen. Um, And then I think we're going to see a lot more people starting to move around once it's clear that hiring isn't gone and it's not going to be gone. Okay. Okay. Got it. Interesting. And uh, I want to understand what you know. What are the uh, some of the common problems engineers face when when interviewing? Yeah. Uh, so we've seen a few things that people do wrong, and we've hosted like over a hundred thousand mock interviews at this point, and we collect all the data from those interviews, and we've. We haven't even really scratched the surface of crunching it well, but we have done a little bit of work and and we've seen some patterns. Um, I think that the biggest mistake that people make is to go into interviews unprepared. Um, And by extension, I think sometimes what happens is uh, a recruiter will reach out to you 
right? And maybe it's a recruiter from a company where you really, really want to work. Yeah. And then you feel a lot of pressure to agree to interview because yeah. this is your shot. Like you finally heard from this company. So of course you're going to say yes. Um, what people don't know, and if, if your listeners remember one thing from me talking, it's I hope what I'm about to say, it's totally okay to say, yeah, I'm really, really interested, but I need a little more time to prepare. Mm. And they will reschedule your interview. Like it's arbitrary when they reached out to you, but now it's your destiny. So you should be in control of it. And, um, you know, people generally take a few weeks to a few months to warm up, depending on how long it's been since their last algorithmic interview. So just like do that, Um, you know, screw up, like screw up your first few. So you screw up in a safe place where it doesn't matter rather than going in unprepared and then having to be frozen out for nine months to a year because you can't interview again until the cool down period is over. Mm, Got it. Interesting. And um, I I think this advice is also valid for people in who are trying to interview for sales or for marketing roles. I think being prepared is, is, it's really important and a lot of people miss, miss out on opportunity. I think that's right. I mean, what people generally, I think like we've all been guilty of this, right? Um, is you, you go and you end up interviewing at companies you don't care about as a way to practice, right? Where you're like, okay, let's, let's do these uh, few throwaway interviews and then um, we'll do better. And uh, I know that people in, in every industry do that. So even if you don't use us, yeah, it's a do that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but also it's probably better to use us because then you don't have to do all the song and dance around those interviews. You can just show up and start practicing instead of talking to recruiters all day and lying about how excited you are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and do you think, you know, somebody should prepare like 20 hours for for one interview? Do, do, you, do you have those, those sort of suggestions or advice for people? It varies a lot. Um, okay. I think that sounds about right, but it does, it does vary. Um, we've seen that fresh grads and we don't have that many fresh grads on the platform but we've seen that fresh grads tend to need less prep time than people that are more experienced and that's because they recently had an algorithms class so there's a strong relationship between how much prep you need and how experienced you are but on a like global average 20 hours sounds about right to me today i have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of beautiful lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Yeah, how, how important is communication when it comes to technical interviews, you know, especially a lot of tech, technical people are uh you know they don't need to really uh be a great speakers but how how important would you say is communication when you're trying to communicate your ideas yeah well fortunately we have data about this um so after each mock interview uh, our interviewers um, who are typically senior engineers at at fang will write uh, a summary of the interview for the candidate they'll also give them synchronous feedback at the end and tell them what they could have done better. But in addition to writing a bunch of stuff, they also rate people uh, on a one to four star scale on three different dimensions. So they rate them on problem solving ability, technical ability, and finally communication ability. And uh, unless you're applying for a management role or like a staff level role and above, 
the reality is that communication doesn't really matter that much. No. Uh, you, <laughs> you can, um, basically the, the most important thing is your coding ability. Yeah. And if you are excellent at that and you're a pretty mediocre communicator, you will probably get moved forward. But if you are, um, not a very strong coder and an excellent communicator, yeah. that will not save you. Probably not that surprising, but, um, we actually have, um, some numbers on this, um, I forget exactly, but if you go to our blog, you can see like we actually uh, put coefficients in front of each of those things and said, how important is communication? How important is um, problem solving? How important is technical? And technical, I think, is like six times more important or something crazy like that. Yeah. Um, and communication can rule you out sometimes if you're terrible. Yeah. Uh, but short of being terrible, that's probably not where, you know, I would focus your efforts. Oh, um, the, the exception to that is, um, you know, it does take some time to get used to thinking out loud. Yeah. And, uh, if you are not an excellent coder, but you're a pretty good one, sometimes yeah. being very effective at explaining your thought process can tip you into passing an interview. Um, but like, if you haven't done that a lot before, it does take a few reps to just get used to th thinking, you know, and talking at the same time. Wow. That, that, that's a very interesting insight. And, uh, and you know, I've seen a lot of companies do not provide, you know, post-interview feedback, uh, you know, be it small or big company. Why, why do you think, you know, companies don't provide feedback? You know, sometimes it looks like they're ghosting you. Yeah, um, I think there are two reasons. And this is like a big part of why interviewing IO exists is because out in the wild, when you're doing those throwaway interviews, they're a black box. Like, you know, if you passed or failed, and yeah. if you don't hear from them, you can assume that it was a fail, but you don't know what you did well. You don't know what you did poorly. And people are actually really, really bad at guessing how well they did and assessing their own performance. Yeah. So I think there are two reasons companies don't provide feedback. Uh, the first one is fear of getting sued. So every HR department at every single company will tell you not to provide feedback. But we actually looked into this because I was a little bit skeptical about the odds of getting sued. So we went through LexisNexis, which is this database that has like every court case in it ever to try to figure out how many engineers have sued a company because they got post-interview feedback. And that number is zero. Yeah. It has never happened. Now, that database doesn't necessarily have cases that settled out of court. So I suppose there's a world where maybe that's possible and this is just US cases, but either way, it's not a thing that happens, but as always, these departments are not actually thinking about what's best. They're trying to protect you against risk, even if that risk is very small. So that's the first reason. Um, the second reason I think is fear of candidates getting defensive. So if you deliver feedback um, and somebody didn't do well, you don't wanna deal with somebody arguing with you, right? It's not gonna reverse your decision. It's just gonna be awkward and unpleasant for you. Um, and I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, one of the reasons interviewing IO is fully anonymous is to help with that. And um, we also have, you know, for written feedback, at least we have a system where just like Airbnb, you rate your interviewer, they rate you, and you don't see each other's feedback until after the interview is over and then you can't change it. But um, of course, uh, many of our users want synchronous feedback as well because they want the opportunity to ask follow-up questions of the interviewer. Yeah. And over time, we have figured out the formula for how to deliver feedback without candidates getting defensive. 
Uh, and now every month when we onboard new interviewers, we run a little training. And this is one of the big parts of that training is how, you know, even if you're a great interviewer, you haven't like flexed this muscle at work because at work you don't give feedback. So the main thing, and there are a few other more nuanced things, but the main way to give feedback well is to not start by talking about the, the outcome. So I know that that's what the person wants to hear, uh -huh. but why do people get defensive, right? It's because they feel powerless. Uh, and if you start by telling them they failed, it's gonna potentially be a shock. They're still processing that information. And then even if you uh, are telling them really constructive, useful things after uh, telling them that they failed, they're probably not in the right headspace to receive that feedback. So what we recommend instead, and this takes more work on the part of the interviewer, but uh, what we recommend is taking really thorough notes during the interview and then, um, you know, asking yourself like, hey, did this candidate um, talk about, did they think about trade-offs, right? Were they able to reason well about time and space complexity? Um, did they, and these are just a bunch of leading questions. Um, did they uh, choose a programming language that they actually weren't super comfortable in? Or, you know, there are some languages where you can write idiomatic expressions and did they like not do that well? Right. Um, were there any obvious off by one errors in their code? Um, if they're designing a system instead of, you know, doing an algorithmic interview, did they jump too fast to like rattling off Kafka or whatever, instead of explaining like why it's Kafka? Um, so there are a lot of these common um, uh, leading questions and mistakes that people make. So you just go through and you just say, hey, you did this well, yeah. this, this thing wasn't as good. Um, and you literally just go line by line and talk through that. Sometimes it even helps to pinpoint the code they've written and say, hey, did you notice this here? And just get very constructive and very specific right away. And then people will be interested, right? You're talking about them. So they're able to put away this, did I pass or did I fail? And what we found is that um, by the end of the discussion, the pass fail thing is almost an afterthought. Right, because you've had such a healthy, constructive, useful conversation about specifics and you're yeah. walking away feeling like you know what you need to work on and then you don't feel powerless anymore. Yeah. Um, last thing I'll say is what some of our interviewers have done also that I really, really like, uh, not everybody um, has to do this, but I thought it was kind of cool, is some of them will ask the candidate to do a self-assessment. Yeah. where at the end they'll say, well, how do you think you did? What do you think you did well? What do you think you didn't do so well? And then the candidate will give their own assessment. The interviewer should write that down and then go through it together with the candidate and be like, actually, you know, uh, you said your code quality was not that good, but I thought it was great. And I really like what you did here. Um, you said that you didn't think that you talked out loud enough during the interview. I agree with that. Here are places where you went silent and where I didn't know what you were doing and so on and so forth. Uh -huh. um, so all of those are remarkably effective techniques. And I wish companies would do this. But yeah. in the absence of that, at least, you know, you have a place to practice. Yeah, yeah. So, so, super interesting. And, you know, when it comes to management roles, uh, you know, if you're trying to get into, say, careers uh, in investment banking, consulting, it really matters, you know, which B school do you go to, but doesn't matter which engineering school you go to, what, uh, what you know, if you went to MIT uh, or any of these great engineering schools, does it really, uh, you know, uh, give a bias uh, to the interview? Um, so I don't know that much about business school, um, yeah. but 
at least for law schools, I think the way it works is there's actually a pretty significant difference between like the top school and school yeah. number five, right? It kind yeah. of drops off and the gap between two and three is like big and the gap between three and four is even bigger, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't think it's that way for software engineering. I think it's more bimodal, right? So either you're at a top school or you are not. Um, and like that's and in some ways that's better because uh, if you're in a top five school, you're probably going to be treated the same way as somebody that's at a top one school. Yeah. But if you're in a top hundred school, good yeah. luck. Right. And you can see this play out. Um, uh, in which career fairs, in which universities, companies usually visit. Yeah. And it's confined to typically a list of 10 to 15 schools. Yeah. And uh, that thinking isn't just for junior hiring, right? That thinking pervades the, the entire continuum of seniority. So like uh, those are the schools and recruiters have been trained to look for those schools. Uh, and, and that's kind of that. Now, over the course of your career, right? So yeah. let's say you dropped out of college um, and it wasn't a particularly good college. Yeah. Uh, if you get a job at Google after that, yeah. um, then it doesn't matter where you went because as long as you have like one stamp on your forehead, it's yeah. fine. Okay. Uh, but if you don't have any of that, I think it's gonna be very, very difficult. Um, and I've seen this so much. Um, when I used to work as a recruiter, uh, I used to actually conduct interviews for all my candidates because I thought I'm technical. I can actually find out firsthand if they're good. And if I'm going to put my name on somebody, I really want to feel confident that they're as good as I say. So what would happen is um, I'd interview people um, and some of them didn't look very good on paper, but I was like, wow, this person's a fantastic engineer. Then I would go to my clients and I hired for like probably 30 big startups that are now public companies. This was years ago. So um, if you think of like all the FANG adjacent companies that IPO'd fairly recently, like back then, you know, they were probably my customers. Um, and the pattern that I saw over and over was that their recruiting team would not engage and they didn't care. I mean, why would they care what I think? I'm just like a random person, but it wasn't really about them not trusting me. It was about, um, they had basically a spec. So they're like, these are the acceptable schools. These are the instructions that we've been given. And these are the instructions that we're going to follow. Uh, and they're really not incentivized to take risks. Uh, so now it's gotten a little bit better because there's been a lot of very um, loud and good discussion about diversity in tech. Yeah. Um, and you certainly can't diversify your uh, Eng team if you keep hiring from the same five schools, yeah. but there's still a lot of work to do. And I don't think those attitudes go away. You know, people talk about unconscious bias a yeah. lot, yeah. but this is a conscious bias. And yeah. this conscious bias is codified into how the hiring process works. Mm. Got it. And, and Ali, you've been uh, you know, the, the CFO close to you know, seven and a half years. Now, how, how, do you, how do you approach the learning process for all the new skills and disciplines you need to uh, you need to add you know over, over the, the course of your of your journey with interviewing dot yeah um i am um i think this is a blessing and a curse yeah. i am not very good at learning by reading or by listening i just have to do 
Okay. So uh, the nature of my job is that it just forces me to do things. And there's no option to say, I don't know how to do this. I remember um, my co-founder and I parted ways um, in 2019, maybe 2018, I, I, but a few years ago. And um, he had always been the one that dealt with our projections, right? And a lot of the business metrics. Uh, and I was more like doing sales and, you know, doing some product stuff, but like, I wasn't in those spreadsheets. Yeah. And then uh, when he left, uh, I was like, oh gosh, right? And I remember thinking, I wish that I had had a tour as a management consultant after college for a year or something, because this is just not a skill that I had. Um, and then I did it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we finally hired um, a head of finance uh, last year. Never had one. Right. And I show, I was completely mortified to, to show him my my spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I think before before he even got hired, I was like, dude, I, I just need you to see what you're getting into. Just, you know, if, and if you think this is horrible, then then you have a chance to say no. Um, and it actually like I mean, of course, like a professional does it way better, but I had figured out enough for it to be decent, right? And um, everything is like that. When you don't have a choice, you just have to do it. Yeah. And um, I uh, am also fortunate where I have a few people that have invested in us or are friends who are also founders where I'm not embarrassed to look stupid in yeah. front of them. So I can just call them up and be like, um, how do you do this thing? What does this word mean? People keep saying, uh, this. The, what is this acronym? Like I've heard investors ask me about it and I was like, oh, what are they talking about? I wrote it down and then later. So uh, I don't know, like I've, I've just accepted that there's a lot of stuff I don't know and that looking stupid is okay. And you just have to do it. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. No, I, th I think that's a great advice that, you know, it's, it's okay to, to look stupid and ask, ask questions from people. I think, uh, I think that's super advice. And you know, what's the, what's the biggest mistake people make when they're trying to, to learn something new? You know, you, you talked about spreadsheets and financials, you know, what's the big mistake people make in, in you, uh, in your team? You know, what's been the experience? Today? I don't know if this is specific to my team. Um, I think that, and I think actually people on my team are, I don't see this very much on my team, um, but I think that this is a, a thing that I, I have seen before and it's something I'm guilty of as well. Uh, just like giving up too easily, um, getting discouraged, getting overwhelmed, um, uh, not, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, right? Uh, what, what was the line from like Winston Churchill? He's like, well, if you're in hell, just keep walking. Like, something like that. Um, and I think that that applies to learning new skills, especially if they're intimidating and they're not something that comes naturally to you. So yeah, just like getting intimidated, being, being scared to look stupid, trying to bullshit your way, you yeah. know, into something. And in my job, if I, you know, it's not like I have a boss that I'm reporting to that I'm trying to look smart in front of. If I do a bad job on something, I'm just bullshitting myself because we're not going to like make as much money as we could. Our users won't be as happy as they could be. Like I'm the one that ends up losing if I do that. 
Um, but if you're reporting to somebody and you're, you know, trying to bullshit your way into something, it, they can tell. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's yeah. better to look stupid and to say, I don't know how to do this and help me help me get started. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's great. And um, and how how uh, how do you how do you look at you know product strategy? Uh, how uh, how should it be reviewed? And you know when when should it be changed? When you how do you look at you know uh, product features to be added? And what's the strategy around it? Yeah. Um, so we used to okay. So for a long time, um, we didn't really have a formal process for goal setting or road mapping. We just kind of did stuff. And then after we raised our Series A, um, I thought, you know what, let's try OKRs. Let's try OKRs and see how those feel. And um, they were so heavy handed. They're so heavy handed and uh, it was so tedious. And um, I actually saw some tweet uh, where somebody, I, I wish I could give them credit. I don't remember who it was, but some guy said that he thinks that OKRs are like a Google PsyOps attempt to like neutralize startups and slow them down. (laughs) (laughs) And that that was kind of our experience. Um, So the way that we ended up working and and, uh, we only did this fairly recently, but I think it's really good is to say, well, for a team of our size, we can have at most, you know, probably two or three parallel work streams. So what are the two say, most important priorities for the company. And once you start thinking about it that way, it's like, well, okay, what are we trying to do? We're trying to fix hiring and make it efficient, but we're also trying to get the business to a place where we can raise our next round. And those two things go together in lockstep, fortunately. Um, So, all right, well, what does our business need to look like at a series B? Great, Uh, let's work backwards from that. How far are we from looking like this? Cool. Okay, what are the two things that we can do that will get us closest? Nothing else. What are kind of the two big things we can do that will get us closest? Great. Let's not do anything else. <laughs> Let's do those two things. And, you know, of course, like you have to fix bugs sometimes and like build some quality of life features sometimes and, and you, you make room for those. But um, since we started doing things that way, I think that there's been a lot more clarity on the team. I hope, you know, if you uh, went to, um, any of the people that work at interviewing IO broke into their house, woke them up in the middle of the night and said, tell me what are the two strategic priorities for the company and what are you doing to move them forward? I think they would be able to answer you succinctly and truthfully. Uh, uh, and that was not the case <laughs> when, uh, when we were doing OKRs. But what's been hard is, you know, uh, the climate has been changing so much that we've had to take a few swings at figuring out what those two things are because we keep getting new information and it's hard you're like well i got new information i guess i have to adjust my worldview okay all right let's keep checking the two things and make sure that they're still consistent with what's going on in the world um but i think now we're we're in a good place it just took a little bit of changing the goalposts while you know when the hiring freezes and layoffs first started we're like okay let's let's take this on board what does that change yeah, yeah, got it, got it. Interesting. Just, just focus on two goals and make sure it, you know. Maybe it's more, right? If you have a very large company, you can probably do more than two things. Yeah, yeah. we are fourteen people right now, so we do two things. Two things. Oh, nice. Got it. Uh, and, and you know, uh, coming back to interviewing, you know, how do you ensure that your your interviews are good? Can mm. can that be done? Yes. 
Yes, it can. <laughs> um, so we didn't really used to track metrics for interviewers. We, I mean, we did because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, at the end of every interview, there's a feedback form and the interviewer fills it out for the candidate and the candidate fills it out for the interviewer. So we would get flagged if a candidate left particularly bad feedback and then somebody on the team would review the interview. And, you know, if somebody did that a few times, we'd probably part ways with them. But it was much more of a uh, reactive uh, process than something proactive. Uh, and then over time, we actually saw that our NPS uh, among our, our users is just linearly and very strongly tied to how well our interviewers are doing. Basically, we live and die by the quality of our interviewers, because one, if they're not providing delightful and amazing candidate experience, people are not going to come back, obviously. And two is if they're not well calibrated, then when our when candidates that we say are top performers go and interview with companies and they're not doing well, those companies stop trusting us and they leave. Yeah. Uh, so live and die, like really, really important. So we actually started um, trying to come up with a scoring system and we recently wrote about how we did that. But for every interviewer, we have two metrics that we track. One is a candidate experience score, and that is um, kind of a model based on candidate feedback. Where, and that helps us predict what is the like for each interviewer, how likely it is uh, that the, can the last candidate they interview is going to leave the platform after that interview, right? Like what's the likelihood of them like making somebody leave? Uh, and then the other score is calibration. And there we're like, are you too strict? Are you too lenient? Or are you just right? And the way we figure that out is we look at how the candidates that they've interviewed end up doing in real interviews. Oh, okay. Okay. And then we expose both of these metrics so every interviewer can see exactly where they're at. And if they start to slip, our system just automatically throttles them. So we always make sure that our best interviewers are the most likely to get booked mm. for mock interviews. Okay, okay. Got it. And, and that's the metrics you, uh, you track for each interview? For each interviewer. And then, of course, we track them in aggregate so we can quickly look at a dashboard and be like, how's our interviewer quality? Oh, interesting. So, super interesting. And, uh, and you know, what, what do you think in your view is the biggest mistake uh, hiring managers make when, when they're hiring? Mm. Oh, gosh. Not using us. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think about that one. I think um, forgetting that an interview is not just a vetting process or a vetting vehicle but a selling one as well, right? So uh, it's not just about evaluating people. It's yeah. about making them want to work for you. And I think the most effective way is other than, you know, paying somebody an obscene amount of money, right? But assuming you're paying market and you're competing with other companies that are also paying market, the most effective way that you can sell a candidate is to get them excited during the interview process. It's not going to be something a recruiter tells them. Um, it's not going to be your perks. It's going to be how much chemistry did they have with the people that they spent time with and how excited are they about the problems that you're solving. And the interview is the exact place where they're making that judgment. So one kind of a subcategory of that mistake is hiring managers not investing the time to come up with unique interview questions. 
Uh, uh, if you're just pulling questions off of leak code or whatever, uh, it's such a missed opportunity, right? You want to ask questions that somebody can solve in, you know, 45 minutes, right? So you have to pare them down and, and make them simple enough that you can, but they have to be based on the work that you're doing such that, you know, the candidate has fun with it. And then once they leave the interview, that's stuck in their head. And then they're thinking, wait, 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 like, if I'm trying to predict attrition among users, I said this thing, but here's a better way to do it, right? And then now, now, like, you're in their brain, you're yeah. in their brain. Um, and if you can turn that interview um, into a collaborative exercise where two people can see if they can be smart together, which is all you want, you just want to be smart with somebody else. That's, that's it, right? How do you do that? Um, and the difference between great interviews and terrible ones is huge. Um, and uh, there's just not that much effort put into it. I guess one other mistake I'll, I'll mention too is um, I've yet to see a company properly reward and incentivize their interviewers. So you don't get paid more for conducting yeah. interviews, right? It's just an interruption and you have like real work that you need to do. Um, and of course, like you're not going to do a great job, but we've seen that, you know, we pay interviewers to do interviews. So we see like what happens when you actually incentivize people. And, um, we also seen like, it's pretty bimodal, like people either love it or hate it. Okay. If you hate being an interviewer, you're never going to do that magical thing where you turn it into a collaborative exercise. You're just going to go through the motions and like lie back and think of England or whatever. And that's going to be that. And you're not going to be able to sell candidates. So just take those people out of the rotation, like find some other way for them to do it. And then make this part of your promotion packet. Be like, how good are you at attracting candidates? How good are you at evaluating candidates? Let's make it so like, this is something that you're getting better at and proud of rather than this like, distraction mm -hmm. got it super interesting and um, Elia, i quickly want to do the top three what's what's your favorite business book <laughs> i don't know like i um i don't really read that's an embarrassing thing but um i uh you know what there is one that and this is not even a business book um i got this book from a friend of mine uh it's called small unit leadership and it was written by um, a guy that, you know, was running, I think, a platoon in Vietnam. Oh. And it's just about, like, how do you get people to do the things they need to do in hard settings? And how do you motivate people? And how, you know, and it's very, very practical advice. Like, the most practical leadership book I've ever seen. It's like, say this to this person. Don't say, like, and, and um, you know, the, the army for, you know, regardless of how one might feel about the army in war, has had hundreds of years of honing yeah. leadership oh. and where many people in our space don't think about learning from that so yeah it's called small unit leadership it's really really good yeah no absolutely i, I, uh, I'm, I think i'm going to read uh, read this book and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to put that in the show notes and you know if you could go back in time when you started uh interviewing.ia what is one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently yeah, I made one big mistake, I think. Well, I made a lot of small ones too, but I had the idea for interviewing IO back in 2014 and it grew organically out of a lot of the work I was doing as a recruiter because I was already doing mock interviews and yeah. uh, trying to figure out how to get companies to talk to those non-traditional candidates. And eventually I was like, oh, wait, if you make this anonymous, then I can trick them into it. Um, and 
I had the idea in 2014 and the way I validated it was by posting on Hacker News. I made a very ugly landing page and it just said, I think free anonymous, um, free anonymous mock interviews with engineers from top companies or uh, free anonymous technical interview practice, something like that. And it did really well. It was on the front page, like number one on Hacker News for two days, I think. Right. And we got like, at least 5,000 signups in that time. Wow. So I was like, okay. And then instead of, and we didn't have a product. I mean, there was no we, I didn't have, a, there was nothing. It was just this shitty landing page. Uh, and once I saw that people wanted it, I, instead of jumping right on it and building and dropping everything else, which is what I should have done, I spent weeks kind of like worrying about it and not knowing what to do. And then I'm like, okay, I need a co-founder. So let me like get one friend and maybe he wants to work on it. And then this other friend, and maybe he wants to work on it. Um, and I went through a few friends and, and um, you know, they all helped, but like, then I was working with this guy that um, was helping and he and I would work on weekends. But he wouldn't quit his main job and just months and months and months went by and that list just got stale and staler and staler. Uh, if I were doing this again, I would say, fuck it. You don't need a co-founder. Um, just do the thing. Find a way to do the thing um, and don't worry about it. Just do the thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's super story. Uh, and, you know, if you could go back, uh, sorry, uh, do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom, anything other than interviewing.io. Mm, I really like a tool called Heap. Heap. Um, yeah, H-E-A-P. So Heap has been part of our stack since day one because um, it does analytics, um, but you can basically plug it in and it'll log all the client side stuff that happens on your site. But you don't have to tell it what events to log, right? You don't have to worry about it. It'll just log all the things. And then you can go back later once you actually figure out what your funnels look like and what events matter and what doesn't matter and like build these funnels and build these reports. Mm -hmm. So you're basically idiot proofing your analytics from day one, yeah. being like, no matter what we need to track, now we have the data and we can figure that out later. And I think, you know, now I think there are probably a bunch of tools that do this, yeah. but back in 2015, which is when I finally built the product like a year later, um, back to my earlier point, um, Heap was revolutionary. I don't think anybody else was doing that. Yeah, okay, got it. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, now, Eileen, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about interviewing.io? Well, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, uh, just check out our site, interviewing.io. There's some really cool stuff on our site. So um, if you want to watch other people interview, yeah. we have the world's largest repo of technical interview replays. So you can, it's kind of like Twitch for technical interviews. So you can just sit there and watch people interview. It's really cool. And that'll give you an idea of what we do. Um, we also have a blog where, you know, some of the questions you had asked me about interviewer metrics and how important communication is and how to give feedback and stuff like that. That's all on the blog. And we write about layoffs. There, we have a whole recession section. So um, a lot of graphs and a lot of hiring data, um, just trying to peel back the curtain on, on some of those things. Uh, and of course, um, feel free to email me. Uh, it's Aileen, A-L-I-N-E at interviewing.io. Carl, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation. My pleasure.
Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.